Good morning. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 is our text for this morning. Got a call from our youngest son, Josh, last night. As some of you know, he's a commercial fisherman, a crab fisherman. And uh, every time I get a call from Josh, I expect some hair-raising story. These guys go up into the uh, Bering Straits in the middle of the winter, fish in sub-zero weather in mountainous seas and somehow survive. And he usually has one hair-raising tale after another to tell. And last night he uh, called us, talked to his mother and me for a while, and then Carolyn had to uh, had to get off the phone to tend to some matters. And Josh began to tell me another one of his stories. He'll rarely tell them to his mother. Uh, seems that he and a friend went down to Sitka to pick up a new boat, and they were going to take it to uh, Kodiak Island. The uh, trip uh, involves. Uh, uh, travel through the open seas. They're actually out into the Pacific Ocean. And uh, they knew a storm was coming, but these ships are crammed with all sorts of electronic gear. They have uh, radar and, and these global positioning systems so that they, they know exactly where they are within feet and uh, onboard computers and automatic pilots, and uh, it's a fairly uh, easy undertaking. But about 12 o'clock at night, it's about a 23-hour journey from Sitka to uh, Kodiak Island, and about midnight, their entire electrical system went out. So they lost their radar, they lost their GPS, all their computers, they had no idea where they were, Uh, they uh, didn't know where anybody else was, and there they were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with no guidance system except a little ball... uh, Compass, which is a uh, centuries-old system that mariners have, have used uh, before they could take advantage of all of this electronic gear. And I said, well, Josh, what in the world did you do? And it was raining like crazy, just sheeting down the window. They, the windshield wiper wouldn't even clear the window. And I said, what did you do? He said, well, I prayed a lot. And uh, kept my eye on that ball compass and prayed for the morning. And when the, when the sun came up, uh, they looked right over the bow of the ship, and there was the harbor to Kodiak Island right ahead of them, and they were able to cruise right into the harbor. And I thought when I heard that story that it there's a very close analog to us and our experience because we, too, are passing through a very dark world. And uh, what we desperately need is a, is a compass, a moral compass, uh, to help us discern the difference between good and evil and to take us safely to the other side until the day, sh- day star dawns, the uh, sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. And that's exactly what Paul is describing for us in this passage. He's talking about the compass that we have, the word of God and that indwelling Holy Spirit who is there to bring the truth to life uh, within us. Uh, Ray Stedman, uh, as you know, was the pastor of Peninsula Bible Church North, where I served for about 18 years. And he has over 700 sermons in print, and they're, they're all now being uploaded onto the Internet. 
And I was rummaging around the other night looking for uh, his homepage. And as you know, it's very easy to get lost on the Internet. I frequently find myself doing that. And I stumbled onto the homepage of a pedophile. I absolutely could not believe it. I'm rarely shocked by anything anymore. But here were little icons, which I didn't want to bring up, but which apparently had pictures of little naked boys. And in this uh, in this homepage, there was a description of that of that perverse activity, a graphic description. And I quickly moved on. I was afraid I'd pick up some virus or something from from the page. But uh, I thought of Paul's words that in his day he lived at a time where people not only did evil but they praised those that did it. And basically, that's what this page was. It was in praise of pedophilia. Uh, that ought to break our hearts. That's the world that we're living in. And the question is, how should we live uh, in a world like this? When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, the people in Ephesus were facing, uh, facing a world very much like ours. Ephesus was a large, uh, busy, sophisticated metropolitan area. It was the capital of Asia Minor, Roman province. And right in the center of the city was this enormous temple to Diana, the sex goddess. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. People came from all over the Roman Empire in order to engage in the in the practices, the perverse practices of that of that place. And, and therefore, what Paul writes to these people is, is relevant. We say, well, he couldn't possibly understand what life is like today. He did understand, because life then is in Ephesus is very much as it is uh, today. So the question then is now is how, to use Francis Schaeffer's old question, how then should we live? And that's exactly the question that Paul is concerned with in this, uh, in this text. Verse 15. Be careful how you live, not as not as unwise, but wise. So he's answering their question. Doesn't want us to be foolish. Wants to wise us up. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That's an interesting statement. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That phrase, making the most of every opportunity, is actually a word taken right out of the marketplace. Uh, It's a verb. It's based on the word for market, the agora of the uh, Roman world. It means to buy things up. You know how it is when you go shopping. You You look for good deals and rebates and sales, when you see a good opportunity, you snap it up because you might not have that chance again. Uh, Carolyn loves to shop in the canned food food warehouse. Uh, That's one of her fun outings. And uh, she came back the other night with three six-pound, 12-ounce cans of plums. I said, what in the world are we going to do with all those plums? We don't even eat plums. She said, well, you have to understand, they were 99 cents a can. And I just couldn't pass it up. 
so we've been eating plums. <clears throat> Such a deal. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Seize every opportunity. Buy it up. Because you might not have the chance again. Now, it's interesting the way Paul puts it. He says, buy up the opportunities because the days are evil. Now, we normally read that text as though Paul is saying, because the days are short. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying evil days are days of opportunity. The more evil the world becomes, the more opportunities there will be to display the grace of God. G.K. Chesterton talks about uh, a time in the life of a child when they, they're tired of playing and they start teasing the cat. And that's what's happened to our world. The good things of life no longer satisfied, so people are, are, are getting involved in, in perverse practices and with the tendency to keep increasing the dose because nothing satisfies anymore and the result is a great hunger and thirst of heart. Paul would say, seize the hour, seize the day, we say today, carpe diem, seize the day, buy up every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, I, I have heard people say, I, I cannot be a Christian in my environment. My employer won't let me. Or I, I can't, I want to be a Christian mother or a Christian father, a Christian parent, and I can't do it because my husband, my spouse, won't permit it. Now, Paul is saying there's no situation in which we are not permitted to be what God has called us to be. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, Jesus said. What, you know, the, the best opportunity to display the poise and the calmness and the peace of Christ is in a pressure-intensive situation. When everyone around us is losing their heads. And we're able to display that calm that the Spirit of God gives. The best way to exhibit the fact that God is the God of comfort is to do so in the face of affliction and, and distress of mind and, and soul, body. The, the best way to display the wisdom of God are, are, is in those bewildering situations where no one has an answer. You see, there, there is no situation for which there is not a counteracting answer and, and resource in Christ. So what Paul is saying is, Buy up these opportunities. There's no situation that ought to frustrate you and thwart you and keep you from being what God has called you to be. As a matter of fact, the greater the pressures, the greater the corresponding provision of God's grace. So buy up the opportunities. Utilize them. And the question is, how? Well, what does it mean to, to buy up these, these times, to redeem them, to to use them, to use every opportunity. Well, Paul goes on to explain. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, that is, loss of control. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. There are two statements that Paul makes here. 
that explain for us what it means to to use every opportunity, to make the most of every opportunity. It's just so simple. It simplifies everything for us. You'll notice that he puts each statement first negatively and then positively. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And both follow that conjunction, therefore, which explains how Paul wants us to go about utilizing every opportunity. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. That's the first step, is comprehend God's will. Now, when we start talking about God's will, people inevitably think of guidance. Who will marry, where we will live, where we will work, where we will go to school, what we will do with the rest of our of our lives. But Paul here is not talking about an itinerary or guidance. It's my conviction that if we really understand what God's will is, then the whole issue of guidance takes care of itself. I've often said the only people that do not discern the will of God in terms of their future and what they're to do with their life are people that don't want it. If you want God's will, you will discern it. He's a guide. All you have to do is follow him, and he'll let you know what to do and where to say it and to whom to say it. And guidance in terms of our future just takes care of itself. When Paul talks about God's will, he is not talking about that issue. He's talking about his moral will, what he wants us to be. 99% of God's will is already revealed in the Scripture. It has to do with the kind of people God is shaping us to become. Paul says, for example, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. Well, that's God's will. It's clearly, clearly stated. I don't need to quibble with God or question him on that issue. He's already revealed it. That's, that's his will for me. So when Paul says that we must understand his will, he is talking about what we are to become as we sit at his feet and we listen to the truth and we let him teach us. He's talking about becoming women and men of the book who read and study and meditate and memorize the word of God and let it filter into our souls and by means of the spirit of God become a part of our life begin to manifest the truth wherever we go. And when we understand God's will in terms of his moral character and what we're to be, everything else takes care of itself. I just got back from California. Carolyn spent a week and a half there. I was there for four days. We were doing some support raising for Idaho Mountain Ministries, our new ministry, and meeting with some friends there, speaking at uh, Peninsula Bible Church South. And uh, I've had a chance to venture out on a California freeway, which I haven't done for a while. And I discovered that it's very easy to find your way around on those freeways. You're alerted long in advance to the turnoffs. I don't need to worry about where I'm going. I don't need to worry about where to drive. That takes care of itself as long as you stay on the freeway. The real issue is how to drive, how to avoid getting maimed or or uh, involved in some terrible traffic accident or how to 
how to drive courteously and in a mannerly. You know, that's the issue is how to drive, how to live, not not where we are to live. Once we understand God's will in terms of his moral imperatives, then everything else just uh, takes care of itself. And we've seen in the book of Ephesians that this is Paul's emphasis. He talks about putting off the old life. Just don't long, no longer live like the, like the Gentiles, the unbelievers do. It's another quality of life. You have a whole new life to live. Put off falsehood. Speak truthfully. Deal with anger. Don't rip people off. Uh, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. He's talking about living a gracious, love-filled life in the midst of demanding circumstances, being filled with compassion and kindness in the face of coldness and the harshness and the brutality of our world. Or as Paul puts it in the passage you looked at last week, to be imitators of God as his dearly beloved children. Uh, Children bear the family resemblance. They look like their father. People ought to look at us and say, that person is the spitting image of his or her father. Heavenly father, he's saying. That's what Paul is concerned about. When he says, understand the will of God. We're fools, he says, if we don't. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Same word, the same word he uses in Galatians 3. When he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Um, J.B. Phillips translates that phrase, oh, dear idiots of Galatia, he says. Don't be idiotic. Don't be a fool, Paul says, but understand the will of God. It's crazy. It's idiotic to go back into the old life. To try to recapture some of the the glory uh, of the old life. To think that there's some satisfaction, some happiness there. Paul says that's part of the old life that's been put away. And now you've put on Christ. You've You've got a new life to live. I uh, came across, uh, some of you may remember Keith Miller's book, The Taste of New Wine, that he wrote about 15, 18 years ago. came across a quotation from that book that's very apt in terms of this, this text that we're looking at. He says, it, it has never ceased to amaze me that we Christians have developed a kind of selective vision which allows us to be deeply and sincerely involved in worship and church activities and yet almost totally pagan in the day-in, day-out guts of our business lives, and we never realize it. What is that saying? It's saying we live by faith on Sundays and in religious matters, but we do not apply it to business or to our relationships with our non-Christian neighbors or to our children and our homes. We have a strange dichotomy of vision that divides life and says in business we act one way, and on a quite different principle than we do in church or in relationship to Christians. Sigmund Freud has said in his general introduction to psychoanalysis that these unchanged areas in our lives are like natural parks which the city fathers in large metropolitan areas fence off and allow to grow wild just as they always have. So the citizens will have a little piece of the old life to wander through to remember how it used to be. 
It's sad to say some of us still have large tracts of land, the old wild areas, and we love to go back and wander in those those in that native environment and, and try to draw some satisfaction from that. Paul says, no, no, you've got a whole new life to live, and this is how you're to live it, subject to the will of God. Understand what the will of the Lord is, Paul says, or as he put it earlier, Try to learn what is pleasing to him. That's the best statement for the purpose of Bible study that that I've ever read. Why do we read the Bible? To try to understand what's pleasing to him. And what we find there is his instruction on the kind of people that he wants us to be. Now that's the first step. You want to have an impact upon your society. You want to make the most of your time. Then understand the will of of God. Be a a, a man, a woman of of the book. Be a one one book person. Not in the sense that you only read one book, but that you read every book by the one book, which is the Word of God. And that you let it saturate your your heart and and your soul. That's the first step. The second uh, is in verse 18. It's the resource that's ours for living out the Lord's will. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Uh, so I pointed out the word means a loss of control. This is exactly what uh, uh, what happens, as any alcoholic or, or drug addict will, will tell you. Uh, the drug or the alcohol begins to abuse you and use you and, and master you. Paul says, don't, don't get drunk on wine. It's not clear from our Translations, but that's actually a, a quotation from the Old Testament, from a Proverbs, from the Greek translation of Proverbs 23, uh, 3, I think it is. Straight off that text, don't be drunk with wine. It's an ancient and an old problem. Alcoholism has been around forever. You see, it is true that some situations in life will absolutely drive you to drink. Paul understands that. We all have the need for something to stimulate us and, and strengthen us, something to give us an edge. That's why people drink. That's why they do drugs. Uh, there are things that are frightening about life. Uh, fear is the natural reaction to threatening circumstances, and life is filled with threatening circumstances. Uh, the, the contemporary adage, no fear, is absurd. Everyone has fear. You're, you're psychotic if you aren't afraid. We can break through the walls of our fear, but fear is an instinctive, natural, protective reaction. Well, what do you do when you're facing a difficult situation with your employee or some encounter with your, with your children or your spouse or just facing into life in general? What, what do you do? Well, Paul says, don't take to the bottle. You know, don't, don't snort a line of Coke. Don't, uh, don't light up a joint. Be filled with the Spirit. There are situations in life that frighten us out of our wits. And we need something to strengthen us and stimulate us. But don't do drugs, Paul says. That's dissipation. That just leads to, to your becoming the servant, the slave of this, uh, of this substance. Rather, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's a... 
And when we start talking about the filling of the Spirit, that's a topic that people are, are very often confused about because they think of the filling in terms of some uh, mystical experience. But Paul is simply saying that when you're afraid, when you feel inadequate, when you feel lonely, all, all alone, you don't know where to turn and drink deeply of the Spirit who is within you. See, every Christian, every believer sitting in this room possesses the Holy Spirit without measure. You do not have to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. You have all the Holy Spirit you are ever going to have. We're told that He pours out His Spirit without measure. As a matter of fact, Paul says, if you don't have the Spirit of God, then you're not His. And conversely, if you are His, then you have the Spirit. What a wonderful resource, the Spirit of Christ who indwells us. Now, Paul says, when you're, you're facing impossible odds, when you're frightened, feeling timorous, you don't know what to do, and instead of taking to the bottle, drink deeply of that resource that indwells you. And that's what stimulates you and, and strengthens you for the task. I thought as I was uh, meditating on this passage of the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and the contact that Jesus had with her, here was a young woman who was not drug addicted or she was not an alcoholic. She was a love junkie. She, she was desperately empty and looking for someone to, to, to love her. And no one ever came through for her. She'd been through a series of husbands, and finally she stopped trying to legitimatize the, the thing, and she was just living with one succession of men after another. And our Lord uh, recognized the hunger in her heart, and he began to engage her in, in conver conversation. And he said, if you just knew who, who I am, then you'd come to me and I'd give you water that would satisfy you. I would satisfy that thirst that you have. And she said, well, so are you greater than our than our father Jacob who gave us this well? You, you have another well that you've dug somewhere? See, she thought she had to go someplace to find this resource. And later, as our Lord moved her from the symbolic to the reality behind the symbol, she began to think in terms of a temple to which she had to go. Oh, I have to go to Mount Gerizim up here on the hill where the Samaritans worshipped. That's where I'll find this uh, satisfaction or I need to go down to Jerusalem. And our Lord said, no, no, that the hour is coming and now is when those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That is not in symbol but in reality and in the human spirit. You don't have to go any place. To find this resource, it's within you. It's within you. I know people that come to church on Sunday morning because they they feel like they they need to be filled with something. They feel empty. They come to church and they enjoy the teaching and and they love the worship and they're ministered to and they feel good. They go out ready to serve and then they find that that sense of well-being begins to drain away so they have to come back to church to find it again on Wednesday night or Sunday morning or whenever the group group gathers my father used to tell a story about a man who who would always pray in church uh, on Sunday morning Lord fill me fill me with your spirit some elderly gentleman stood up in the back of the room and said Lord please fill him I think he's got a leak 
You don't have to go any place to be filled with the Spirit. You take Him with you, see? Wherever you are, in your office, your shop, your classroom, your field, uh, your business, wherever you are, you have that, that infinite resource, the Spirit of Christ who indwells you. Drink deeply of Him. Be filled and flooded uh, with Him. Now, what follows are the marks of that filling. What will happen to you? When you're flooded with the Word of God and when you're filled with, with His Spirit. Well, again, you know, we look for some, some obvious signs or marks. Will something mysterious happen to me? Will I shimmer and shine and float six inches off the ground? Will I know things that I never knew before? What will I be like? Well, Paul explains in the verses that follow. And I need to point out that all of the verbs in verses 19 and through 21 are really participles. They're what grammarians describe as modal participles. That is, they explain the method by which the filling of the Spirit becomes manifest. Uh, could be translated like this. Be filled with the Spirit with the result that you will speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You will sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. You will give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you will submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So in three steps, Paul tells us what a spirit-filled man or woman uh, looks like. First mark of a spirit-filled individual is that they will they'll hear the music of heaven and they will sing God's songs after him. Uh, I love the way he puts this. Speaking to yourself, actually, the uh, most texts put one another, but it's uh, it's an old reflexive pronoun that almost always is translated yourself. And I think it's in parallel to making music in your heart to the Lord, that is in the inner person. So he's saying, uh, speak to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. I'm glad he said in the heart and not in the mouth. Uh, I, I identify with a friend of mine who says he used to sing in the church choir until he missed a practice. And the choir director informed him that he thought they had fixed the organ. Uh, uh, you, you don't have to sing beautifully. It's in the heart. You say, what's he saying? Well, when you're a person of the book, when you begin to ransack the Bible, read it, study it, meditate upon it, memorize it, let it saturate your thinking. Then you begin to think God's thoughts after him. You begin to sing his songs after him. You begin to hear the music of heaven and replicate it in your mind. Uh, Carolyn, as I mentioned, stayed behind in, in California for uh, almost a week and uh, with a friend of hers. And they went to see the Phantom of the Opera in the city in San Francisco and uh, last night, we, we, we were taking our evening walk around the park. We very often just walk around the park before we go to bed, Winstead Park. And I asked her what, what she thought this passage meant. What, what does it mean, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord? She said, I know exactly what it means. She said, ever since I went to hear, uh, to see and hear the Phantom of the Opera, those songs have been going through my head. Can't get them out of my head. I keep humming them to myself. I keep thinking about the words. That's what Paul's talking about. 
When, when you give yourself to understanding the will of God, when you try to find out what's pleasing to Him, then His thoughts begin to resonate in your heart and mind, and His songs begin to play in your thoughts, and you sing the songs that, that He sings. You'll be a word-filled person. The second thing that He says is that you'll always give thanks to God the Father for everything. My Goodness, is that going to stand out in this world? He says, you will not gripe and complain and moan and cry the blues. You will not be a gloomy, moody, unhappy person. Uh, you know, the world thinks of Christians uh, as, as, as sad, austere people, people whose faces would make a good frontispiece to the book of Lamentations and uh, Paul says, no, no, no. What ought to characterize us is a thankful, joyful heart. See? That's the result of the Spirit indwelling you. When you're, a, a home, you're at home and you're feeling very lonely, we all have those times, and, and restless, and you don't know what to do. Drink of the Spirit, Paul says. Remind yourself of what God's will is. And God will begin to fill you with His joy and His thankful heart. I came across the the most startling verse of our Lord. I had never read it in context before. Uh, he had come to the end of his ministry, and his ministry was a disaster. Uh, the, the, the crowds were dispersing. Uh, the clergy were opposing him. Even, the John, even John the Baptist questioned his authenticity. His ministry was in ruins. And in that context, our Lord prays, Father, I thank you. And he goes on to thank the Lord for the ministry that that the Father had given to him and that he was going to glorify him. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's a grateful, thankful heart despite the circumstances in which uh, the, the difficult circumstances in which we find ourselves. So we'll be word-filled. We'll be thankful people. And then finally, Paul says, we'll be people who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And there, there again, someone who has that yielding spirit, a soft face, a willingness to give up uh, your rights uh, for another, that, that's going to mark you as a special individual. See, I, we come into the world with a, the tendency to grab and grasp and to want everything for ourselves. That's natural. That's the way we are. But when the Spirit begins to fill us, something very unnatural, something supernatural begins to happen. Instead of being someone who demands their rights and always wants their way and and, uh, will will, uh, engage in conflict in order to get what they want, someone who doesn't do that begins to look very different uh, to the world. See, the problem with our world is that and going out to try to get what we want, we invariably clash with someone who's, who's, who wants what they want. And that's how conflict develops. Well, conflict is, is inevitable in this world. You can't avoid it. But, but the issue is how do we respond to the conflict? A willingness to, to give ourselves away, a willingness to give up our rights, to submit to another person for the, for the sake of Christ. That's, uh, that's supernatural, let's see. That's the kind of person that 
that the wise man in Ecclesiastes describes as a person with a soft face. Wisdom softens your face. A person like that is, is marked in this world. Those are the marks of the filling of, of the Spirit. I've been doing a lot of radio interviews uh, lately. I haven't done much in the past, but in the last three weeks I've had eight uh, interviews on talk shows. It's really kind of fun. I approached it with a lot of uh, misgivings, but I really enjoy it, people calling in and chatting. And, and I did an interview on a station in Southern California, which happened to be uh, uh, the, the, uh, the talk show host was someone who had a, a very strong personality and who advocated a number of causes that Christians ought to be involved in. And a woman called in. I, I actually, I referred to this passage and some other passages because this particular text was on my mind and talked about what it is that God wants us to do and to be in, in this world. And while there's nothing wrong with taking stands against evil and being salt and light and trying to redress evil wherever we find it, we may do these things and yet find that the people... Uh, who oppose us are no closer to God than they ever were before, that no one has been drawn near to the heart of God, and we really have not done anything that's eternally worthwhile. And then pointed out that uh, what God wants us to be is, is the kind of person that is so attractive and so winsome and so adorns the gospel that people will be drawn to Christ and this is a person who is filled with the Word and filled with the Spirit and living a supernatural quality of life in the world that's so wonderfully attractive. This woman called in and she said, you know, she said, I, I feel manipulated by every cause and craze in the world. And to hear what Paul has to say is like a breath of fresh air. And I thought that's exactly true because that was the same impression I had when I read it. Who knows what to do in this crazy world? How are we going to bring our corner of the world into sync? Is the world gone mad? What can we do to bring some sanity to our part of the world? Well, this is how. This is how. Be a person filled with the Word, filled with the Spirit. Don't worry about what God is going to do with you. It's up to Him to get you to the right place at the right time, to do the right thing, or to say the right thing to the right person. Our job is to keep her eye on the compass and wait for the dawn. Let's pray. Now we're going to gather again around the Lord's table this morning. and It's a time for us to inspect our own hearts, the degree to which they are conformed to this truth. I need to ask you as I ask myself, am I a person who is filled and flooded with the Word of God? Am I taking advantage of that infinite, bottomless resource that's given to us, the Spirit of God who indwells us? Am I making the most of every opportunity? Lord, search our hearts. Bring to the surface every hidden motive, every impure thought, every incorrect notion of what we are to be. Correct us, Lord, by your word and by your spirit. And as we gather around your table this morning, may we eat and drink of you, that wonderful resource 
made available to us because you loved us enough to pay the price for our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.